Well, hanging over me immediately is Peter's point. Uh, the strike had to win the political and moral case in the news media. And of course, Kath's question from the last session, hanging over me even more, would an honest portrayal have helped the miners win the dispute? Uh, I realize only too well uh, that the role of the media was a source of great controversy during the dispute. The BBC, for which I worked, I was the Labour and Industrial Correspondent, we were distrusted, distrusted in many of the mining communities. And I accept my presentation this morning might rekindle um, some of those criticisms. But controversial though it was, um, I think the media's narrative did have an influence, uh, as Peter has been trying to explain. So in exploring what I hope I'm going to be able to demonstrate to Betty and uh, to Anne is that I think it would be different today and I would like to demonstrate to Ian and Nikki, the, the, the two miners who described how they had been arrested by the police, how it might have been different uh, for them today uh, and that, that is a difficult mission but I begin as I said by explaining the narrative as it was being presented to the public at the time and that is so important and I am you see and if only, if only there'd been a settlement, I also accept that I have to have some soul searching on my own part. Because this was presented by the media as a fight to the finish. Um, that uh, Margaret Thatcher, if she defeated Scargill, would be creating a turning point for Britain. Uh, as we've heard, she mobilised the full force of the state against the miners. And the miners had been the shock troops of the trade union movement. And of course, if they were defeated, that would be, and many people recognised it, the end of the all-out strike. And if we look at it, there has not been another all-out strike comparable to the miners' strike since that defeat in 1984-5. Now, Britain was divided. Uh, Mrs Thatcher had taken on the entrenched power of the nationalised industries as well as the trade unions. Forcing through the closures, of course, led to the demise of the coal industry. And just think of the figures. In 84, 172 pits, 200,000 miners, only three collieries today. Now that is an image that shows Britain as it was divided in the view of the American magazine, Time magazine, in 84. And it does show, doesn't it, a pretty uh, uh, divided Britain. But you can see how it's presented even in the American media as Thatcher v Scargill. Now, why um, is the fallout from the strike resonating 30 years later? Well, new technology has transformed the media and the way we report violent demonstrations. Activists within the union movement, and my word, we've just heard two activists, haven't we? Um, two women against pit closures describing they seem only too well aware now how to exploit the news media. Uh, and I think activists understand how these eye-catching images must be used in a way, as Peter has just said, to try to win the case uh, in the media. And this is the point I make as well. No union has ever repeated the miners' mistake of relying just on industrial strength. Um, they would not have made the mistake of alienating radio and television. And we have to remember that pro, uh, uh, before the strike, uh, uh, in the early 80s, 
most press reporting was pro-Mrs. Thatcher. Uh, Scargill and the miners were demonised. There were left-wing newspapers vociferous in support of the NUM. What about television and radio? Well, I think we have to recognise TV and radio output was nothing like it is today, and it was the newspapers which were dictating the agenda. And just look at the headlines from the day. This is the daily way in which the papers reported the war. Uh, the war, I've used the phrase, haven't I? It was a strike. But that was what it became. And of course, we heard Ian Lavery um, sitting in the miners' office uh, in the northeast looking at the morning news bulletins. Well, it was these front pages which were appearing on breakfast television, which were setting the agenda for the day. Look at them. And there, of course, is the Daily Mail. They were saying that it's um, uh, a strike against democracy. This, of course, was the left. Uh, and of course, it's the jobs issue, which is paramount. Now, we have to realize that once the NUM's industrial strength had been neutralized, it was neutralized by that massive police operation, the battlefront switched to the media front line. Now, Scargill was a, a brilliant self-propagandist, but I think he was no match. Obviously, he was going to be no match uh, for the strength of the government's media machine. The national press glorified the strike breakers, and it wasn't by choice. And I'll explain why. But radio and television, I think, became the cheerleaders, the cheerleaders for the return to work. And those morning news bulletins uh, were reporting the new faces, the men who had broken the strike. What would happen today? Well, public sympathy for the mining communities was considerable, but so was the support uh, for curb, curbs on union militancy. Police uh, brutality didn't get the graphic coverage it would today, and I shall be showing you why. The pit villages, of course, unfortunately became a bit of a no-go area for many reporters. I think the family hardship, which we have heard so clearly demonstrated today, was underreported. And if Mrs. Thatcher had been up against rolling news, mobile phones, YouTube, Facebook, Twitter, I don't think she would have won. Now, what about quickly the release of the Cabinet Papers? Why are they so important? Well, I think what they show, and we have to remember that the rest of the papers for 85 come out in July because the period is being reduced. The government is getting to a 20-year release of records. Uh, Mrs. Thatcher can't hide her secrets. Is Mr. Scargill going to take his to the grave? Uh, one question I ask. Now, Mrs. Thatcher went into the strike having secretly already authorised 45 pit closures, rising to 75. She had personally intervened to stiffen the resolve, those are her words, of chief constables. She was giving secret support to the South Yorkshire police and uh, elaborate subterfuge, that's what the CEGB said, was being used to keep the lights on. Now, there was a government cover-up, um, and that, to me, was quite clear, because, of course, they go into the strike saying they're going to close just 20 pits. Was the failure to hold the ballot a critical error? Well, we've heard a marvellous discussion, haven't we, about that today. Uh, we know, of course, the miners in Knots continued to work. Now, this is just rolling through to the point I want to make as to why it would be different today. This is how... The strike is reported the day after it starts. Look at the figure. That's the Daily Express, 20,000 pits to be axed. This is the mirror, the showdown, March the 6th. So it's the day after the announcement about Corton Wood. And then we follow through what happened. This is the 6th of March. Uh, you see, it starts in Yorkshire. 
The Scots are the next to join on the 7th. This is the papers of the 7th. Then, of course, it becomes uh, area strikes. And we heard it explained how there wasn't going to be the national ballot, and instead each area that called the strike got official backing. Uh, now, then the violence escalated. And, of course, we've heard the use of flying pickets. Uh, of course, they had helped win the strikes in 72 and 74. And... A week into the strike, Mrs. Thatcher takes steps to stiffen the resolve of the chief constables. We had an unprecedented police mobilization within a week because uh, police were stopping pickets on motorways within a week. The big metropolitan forces, London, like Manchester, they were the people who sent so many of the reinforcements. The NUM urged uh, other workers to join them, and it was Orgreave which became the scene of those medieval clashes. Now, just go through the strike as it happened. Here's the, the, the Wednesday after the start. It's spreading. The police are moving in. Uh, the police, and this now is uh, only uh, a week into the strike, flying pickets turned away. The mobilization was beginning within a week. Pickets going into battle, uh, uh, attempts to try to ban the, ban the flying pickets. Uh, a picket dies very early on in March. Scargill's commandos defy the law. This was the morning star. Um, sure that the strike's grip was tightening. Uh, here, you see, in April, we're already getting the briefings that Mrs. Thatcher is moving to a war cabinet. Uh, now, look at this, though. This is April the 30th. Mrs. Thatcher is now praising the police for their superb response within a month of the strike, within just over a month of the strike starting. Picket lines, you see punch-ups. But look at this. The Daily Mail is confident. The blue line holds firm. So the mobilisation of the police was working uh, in those early months. Scargill, of course, uh, asks, uh, making this point about the brutality. This is a very famous picture of a, uh, a policeman in a toy police helmet, uh, walking down a picket, walking down a line of police. Uh, this, of course, is Mr. Scargill himself getting arrested. And that was a pretty big day out at Orgreave, because it was more than just one day. It went on for several days. Uh, then we had complaints that uh, uh, the pickets we using uh, stones to make it difficult for the police horses. This, of course, is the image that we've just heard about. Um, this is Leslie Bolton, and this is uh, a famous photograph taken by a photographer called John Harris. Now, I want you just to hold that image in your mind, because I want you to look at this picture. Now, this is the typical of the pictures that we had taken in the strike in wide shot. Look at that for a picture of uh, the uh, police at work. But what I want you to understand is that the photograph of the police officer is an exception. Often they are in wide shot because the photographers were behind the lines, behind the police. Most footage is from behind the police lines. And the pickets weren't keen on being photographed and equally were the uh, police against uh, uh, journalists being present, and they were restrained if we were present. So, the, the, and this is why one of the reasons why the controversy continues today. I mean, the BBC is in the dock because, of course, uh, we are blamed, the BBC is blamed for reversing the footage in one of the uh, reports. ITN undoubtedly had more crews at Orgreave, but ITN only captured one 
an incident of an officer actually beating somebody on the head. There is only one recorded television image of it. And I think, you see, today, um, I think that the police would be under far greater scrutiny today. In 1984, as I said, there are so few close-up images, um, not only at Orgreave, but also in the Pithead villages. In 1986, we had a few more close-up shots of what happened, um, I beg your pardon, of what happened at Wapping, uh, but there was only one point of contact there, and again, there was minimum coverage. Now, I think what would happen today, you see, is we would get instant online coverage. Social media has transformed what's happening in, in public order events. Uprisings, as we know, are being reported from around the world. Uh, the Arab Spring, Syria, Kiev, we see and hear instantly uh, via bystanders what's happening. And just remember this, in 2009, the newspaper vendor Ian Tomlinson, who was involved in the G20 protest, he's exposed by a camera phone photo of an American banker who's visiting London who gives his footage to the Guardian. And there it is, look, you can see um, the, the, the picture um, of the policeman pushing um, Ian Tomlinson. And that, of course, is leading to this uh, uh, police officer uh, losing his job. Now, that is a way in which the police would be held to account today. Now, of course, we have to realise, don't we, that Orgreave and the fact that the police conduct there is under examination is moving on to what's been happening at Hillsborough under the demands there. And, of course, we know that the uh, Hillsborough inquests start next week. Again, when it comes to the crush at Hillsborough, there are very few images, close-up images, of what was happening. That, I think, would be the difference today. Now, uh, why is it all being revisited? Well, undoubtedly, we've heard from Ian Lavery, they are asking uh, for the whole thing to be uh, revisited. So far, the Conservatives' line is no apology is needed. Uh, a new book's just come out. Uh, I put a chapter in that. Um, and it's all, I think, unfinished business. Let's just go through. This is John Stalker. He's reflecting on Mrs. Thatcher's death, on how we were on the verge of having a national police force. There's that famous, yes, I'm, I'm coming. There's that famous photograph um, of uh, Leslie, which is back in the news. As I said, it's the only image we've got. And look, there's Mr. Um, Cameron saying it's Scargill who should apologize. That's now. That's what's happening now. There's the most recent book. Now, there's no doubt in my mind that it was the step-by-step -step action of the police and the way in which the coal-fired uh, 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 stations were being converted to oil uh, and the way the subterfuge was keeping going, that it was keeping the lights on. And uh, there's no doubt, you see, she's told in 85, um, uh, sorry, in 84, that the, that the power stations will keep going until June 85. The nuclear stations are running. And the media strategy, you see, is to maintain the utmost secrecy. And what I think is, is quite clear, and we've heard this, and I hope we're going to explore it a little bit later, was the clash is the divide and rule strategy. Because the news agenda, you see, was dominated by the NUM's attempts to um, stop other industries from working. And I think the government's offensive uh, was to uh, dis, you know, display the hopelessness of the strike. And I'll quickly go through and end with this sequence of slides. So here we are, you see, this is the attempt to try to get the uh, 
coal to stop moving. Uh, here's the energy crisis looming. The Morning Star believing it's going to be 60 days to blackouts. But look, the rebel railmen keep the trucks ro rolling. We've heard that some worked, but others didn't. Uh, we heard of the flashpoint at Ravenscraig. Look at the picture here of the police officers being flown up to Scotland. And it's the coal convoys beating the siege. The steel men hammering Scargill. So this worker against worker is a ready-made storyline for the media. And it's one that's feeding through into the radio and television coverage. And then we had the threat of a dock strike, which collapsed. And I think there was no doubt about it that um, uh, perhaps let me just show you these final slides of Mr. Scargill, and we'll end on these. This is the fact that I don't think that Mr. Scargill brilliant communicator though he was, could actually withstand uh, what happened to him. And just, just look as a final sequence at the way this one shot of Scargill is treated by the media. That was the Express. There he is in the Telegraph. There he is in the Financial Times. There he is in the Daily Star. That was what the Sun wanted to print. And that was what the Sun printed because, of course, the printers refused to publish it. Um, and I'm, I'm going to press escape and get out. Uh, there we are. Thank you very much indeed. Thank you, Nick. Thank you.